tonight is going to sound like a missions lesson. Because as you have been learning and kind of walking through, how do we minister to individuals that are walking through crisis pregnancies? And many times we focus on the women, but also know there's men involved too. That many times those men are absent, but there's opportunities for us, if they're in the picture, for us to minister to them as well. When you are ministering to people, we talk about culture. In missions, we talk about cultural awareness. And one of our big terms that we like to talk about is contextualization. When we talk about contextualization, what that is, is taking the gospel message, not changing the gospel message, but making sure that you are communicating it in such a way that the other person is able to receive it in the best way. Understand, I'm not saying that we change the gospel message, but how we communicate it and the method by which we discuss it many times will help for the message to be received. And one of the best ways to do that is through what missions would call cultural awareness, cultural intelligence, and just navigating some of the intricacies of culture. Last week, if you were here, Ross talked about generational poverty. And he gave you a a worksheet or a a diagram of the different um, views or values of somebody that has grown up and lives in generational poverty, somebody that's grown up and lives in middle class, and somebody that lives and grown up in wealth. And how they interact with something like money, and that was just one example uh, somebody that lives in generational money, they uh, generational poverty, they view money to be something that is to be spent, to be used, uh, because they don't know who's going to try to take it away from them. Somebody that's in middle class, money is to be managed. I got to put it in this envelope, right? <laughs> you know, most people that are, you know, Dave Ramsey, I, don't th- I think he got rid of the envelopes a long time ago because it doesn't. He's just one. He's got enough, right? But we, in middle class, we manage through envelopes, right? Because we want to make sure every dollar counts. Those in wealth, money is to be invested. Well, if you're working with, if you're somebody that's wealthy and you believe money is to be invested and you're, you're trying to build a relationship with somebody that has grown up in generational poverty and they believe money is to be spent, can you see how there's going to be a clash of ideas? Their values are different. And so what our hope is, is through just Gaining understanding, you have a a better position to explain and express the gospel. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Please understand, I want you to put your, your, your people hat on. Everything that I talk about is going to, it's going to translate into your setting of Hey, how do we best minister to somebody that's walking through a crisis pregnancy? How do we best minister to somebody that comes from a different culture or a different perspective than I do? Whether it's somebody that's in Southeast Asia or whether it's somebody in South Memphis, culturally, they're going to be different than you. And some of the guidelines and things that we're going to talk about tonight hopefully will equip you to begin to bridge those gaps better. Because in the end, our goal is to communicate the gospel. Our goal is to see somebody changed and transformed by the gospel. So let's walk through a couple of things tonight. First thing we want to talk about, why do we need to be thinking about culture and cultural awareness, cultural intelligence? Different cultures have different value systems that determine what makes sense to them 
and what they are comfortable with. If somebody's value system is different than yours, there will be conflict when those values oppose one another. And you have to be ready as a somebody who's culturally intelligent, somebody that wants to be missional, you have to be ready to face those differences in the appropriate way. So we have to be culturally intelligent because different cultures have different value systems. And we want to be prepared to inter interact with people from other cultures. We're going to talk a lot about tonight individuals that are in generational poverty. But you also understand crisis pregnancy is not just a generational poverty issue. It's a middle class issue. It's a wealthy issue. Because we live in a fallen world and where there is sin, sexual immorality is one of those sins that pervades all classes, all cultures. So I don't want us to be so zeroed in and focused on generational poverty that we neglect or forget other folks that we, we may have an opportunity to walk with that are walking through um, crisis pregnancy. However, we probably will have the most differences with individuals that are in generational poverty when we start to minister with them and try to understand them and try to walk with them side by side. So we will talk specifically about through some of that as well. All right, so first, it's always good to have a, a biblical theology of cross-cultural missions, and this is, this is what we're talking about. We're crossing cultures, uh, whether and you, you thought you had to go to another country to do that. Uh, you need to understand that God is intentionally involved in cross-cultural ministry. Jesus, when we talk about missions, we say missions is crossing a barrier, whatever that barrier may be. Jesus crossed a barrier. He came from heaven to earth. He crossed a big barrier. He took on flesh for us, Philippians chapter 2. So when we talk about this, you need to know and understand the first cross-cultural, one of the first cross-cultural missionaries was Jesus Christ himself. <laughs> it, from the foundation of time, his plan was to come to the earth. And so it's an amazing thing to think about that, that when you decide that you're willing to cross a cultural barrier, you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And we want to make sure that we understand that. Um, because Christians are to go to every ethnic group, this implies not only the mandate, but its feasibility. And I, this is very important for me to help understand. When we look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, we say that it's a command to go. Do you think God is going to command you to do something that He's not going to empower you to do? That would be illogical, right? So we need to understand that as we walk through difficult situations with individuals, we need to know that God is with us and that when we are fulfilling His command, it's possible to do. If we are willing to give time and space and energy in understanding somebody that's different than us, God is with us and He empowers us. Because He commanded us to do it, that means that it can be done. Is that encouraging to anybody? Because <laughs> so many times we walk through these situations and we're like, God, there's no way this is possible. But yet, because He commanded us to do it, we know that it is possible. 
And I love Matthew chapter 28. One of the, uh, you know, we talk about so many times, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Many times we focus in on the go and make and baptize. One of my favorite parts of that text is lo, I am with you always. And it's not, this is not what it means, but it's just a good picture. Even when you're low, <laughs> Jesus is with you. <laughs> you know, that's not what that means in King James English, but that sure, it sure does teach well. I mean, but even at your lowest point, when you're ready to give up in this journey that you're willing to take, remember that low, Christ is with you always. That should be an encouragement. And it's just important for us to know that this idea of cross-cultural missions is not just from uh, not just from the New Testament, but it's in the Old Testament. You know, I love Isaiah forty-two six. It says Christ, talking about the Messiah in this passage, He will be a light for the Gentiles. Even though Abraham and the Jewish people they were the chosen race, they were the chosen race to bless how many nations? All the nations. So the nations was on the heart of God from the very beginning. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. At Pentecost... Jews from every nation under heaven heard them and they were speaking in his own language. The Holy Spirit comes in the upper room. The Bible says that it was like a mighty rushing wind. There were flames that looked like tongues over their heads, whatever that looked like. But when they went out and they spoke, remember Pentecost, Jews from all around the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They had their own languages. They had their own dialects. But when the apostles spoke, they heard their language. God was willing to meet individuals where they were at so that the gospel could be communicated. And I love the fact that one of the most, the biggest things, you go back to Genesis chapter 10 in the Tower of Babel, what did God do? He made the languages to confound them because he knew that whatever was in their heart, they were going to be able to accomplish. And he saw this as a bad thing because they were trying to build themselves up to God, right? I don't have a lot of time. I get into these side things, it's, but it's, it's there. Um, <laughs> so, but it's just amazing to think that at Pentecost, he brought the church together and allowed people to hear the gospel in their own language. Some of the people that you're going to be ministering to need to hear the gospel in their own language. And let, guess what? Their language is English, but if you don't understand their culture properly, drop that, um, you, you're not talking their language. You're not communicating. Does that make sense? Just because it's a blessing that they speak English, but if you don't understand them culturally, they're not going to hear you. They're not going to receive it. We have to be willing to learn. You think local missions, doing ministry in your own city should be easy. But anytime you're crossing a barrier, 
there's obstacles that are going to be in the way that are going to discourage you. And we need to be willing to learn the language. And I love this because it, it's so key. You, you go to a, a country like, um, like Kenya, everybody speaks Swahili. But there's 52 tribes in Kenya, and every one of those tribes has their own heart language. And the best way to communicate the gospel is if somehow you can better, best explain it in their heart language. You have to learn and put yourself in the position to try to discern the heart language of the people that you're ministering to and where you can connect the gospel with them. Um, and, and even a riot was claimed, calmed when the Jews heard Paul speak in, his own, in their own tongue. And that's another story where you see language being used um, to proclaim the gospel. Um, we need to understand that the, there is a multicultural church. The church from its inception has been multicultural and cross-cultural. And I love this. When you look at Pentecost, 3,000 new souls were born again. And many of those stayed and made the church of Jerusalem. Other of those went to other nations. And when you look at the church, like the church of Philippi, that, uh, that we learned a little bit about on Sunday, you had Lydia, you had a slave girl and a Philippian jailer, and they started the church at Philippi. You had economic barriers, you had uh, national barriers, you had language barriers, all in one of the first churches. And so we need to understand, like, how do we make our church a church where somebody that's from a different culture, a different economic point of view or economic status than us or the majority, how do we make a church that is comfortable or willing and understanding of everyone? Does that make sense? We, and it, it's amazing that from the beginning we had that example. So we, you hear a lot of people say, well, that's a black church, that's a white church, that's a Latino church. I think God's desire, and when we see Revelation chapter 7, I'm getting ahead of my notes, Revelation chapter 9, verse 7, I think. All nations, all tongues, all tribes are represented. And how awesome would it be to have a church that looks like heaven? i got to hurry up. Um, the church in its final form, uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, um, Every tribe, every tongue, every language, and people. Um, when we talk about the salvation at 3,000 Pentecost, include the same uh, many nations there. Um, the barrier to sharing the gospel with non-Jews took extraordinary measures to overcome, including angelic visitations, visions, and providential uh, timing. All of that is revolving around, hey, it, it's not natural for us to go to people that are different than us. Peter in Acts chapter 10, had to have an angel say, hey, Peter, you need to go to the Gentiles. There's a guy coming. He wants to meet you. And what I have, he does all of the, you know, what does it look like? A sheet with a bunch of animals on it. And he uses that somehow to convince Peter that he needs to go to a Gentile's house. And, and you see these struggles throughout the New Testament where it was very difficult for the Jews to get into their minds that we need to be willing to go to the Gentiles because they wanted to stay in, in their own tribe, if you will. 
if you're in this class and you're wanting to walk with individuals that are experiencing walking through crisis pregnancy, I, I think your heart is already in the right place because you're saying, I want to cross a barrier that maybe I, I need to be willing to cross. And I just think it's important for us to begin to see and realize it's more, the church is more than just what we view it to be. It's more than our culture. It's bigger than our culture. And when I say our, I mean my culture. It's bigger than your culture, right? We've got to be willing to see the bigger picture. And this is just something that I loved. We talk about in our intro to missions class, ethnocentrism. Um, it's a big word, but basically means you think you're better than everybody else because you know best. And this is, a, it's a real thing where you, and it's not just individuals that are in majority culture. It's just if you're around people that are like you, like you, you think you are best. It's natural, right? Anybody, have you, how many people have gone on a, a mission trip out of the country? All right. When you entered into a culture where like you didn't know the language, you didn't know why they did what they did. There's, if you uh, probably, there's this little voice in your head that you have to fight against is, that's just weird. Why would they do that? Anybody ever, am I the only one that, I just got, <laughs> just me, you know, I've, I, I went to, recently I went to Amsterdam, I went to Istanbul, and I went to Cambodia all on the same trip. Those are three very different countries and three very different cultures. And I, every time I just looked at it like, that's just so different than what I am. And so, so it's sometimes easy to put ourselves and think that if it's different than who, what we are, then it's bad. Um, and we have to be careful not to do that. Um, ethnocentrism is prejudicial because the strengths of other cultures are often not appreciated. Think about that. When you think about somebody who's in generational poverty, you want me to tell you how their culture is better than your culture right now? They love and focus on family and community. They value that more than middle class culture does because middle class culture has a tendency to be more individualistic, right? Now, when we say family... Many times we think mom, dad, 2.5 kids, white picket fence, and all that kind of stuff. When they say, when people in generational poverty, family means something very different. It is their support system. I have met people that, like, they, and they have three different women they call mom because at some point in their life they have been foundational in their development and love and they are their mother for a time or for a season or forever and that's you probably have never thought about calling more than one or two women mother before because mother is a sacred thing for us so you see how that's different now i appreciate that because i'm i can be a loner by nature and I can learn from a culture that is more communal, that is more family-driven 
and I need to come alongside and appreciate that. That's that's just one one uh, example. Sure, please. Okay. Than it is for the picture of the woman. Mm-hmm. Because my comment is, and I said, I, I do that with my extended family being just because my daughter married into the family. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousins were almost like siblings. Wow. My grandmother was second cousin to my <laughs> grandmother. And so I don't know why that is, but I have found it that the history of the Mm-hmm. Uh, there appeared that slavery was but not the primary reason for yep. that church. I felt it was having that man being present in the family. Mm-hmm. So I don't know from there where mine came and yeah. why that's in addition to facing racism right. and having no one that I felt like mattered to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that's a great point to, to bring up. That anything that I say, when we talk about, I'm talking in generalities, and I'm talking in there's all there's all minutia when we talk about whether it's socio socioeconomic uh, developed or ethnic developed or or whatever. Please understand that uh, there's all there's going to be multiple lay, layers of this. But I, I think that is a great point that different and even across around the world, when we in, engage in different ethnicities and different cultures, they have a different value to family and even how they uh, approach senior adults and value age and all of that, all of that changes. So I think that's a great point. Any Anything else anybody want to add? Perfect. All right. Um, and this is just explaining more of this. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I, I do like this last point. The pride is perhaps strongest among those who have the least experience with other cultures. You think you're the best because you've experienced the least, right? Because if you don't have a wide open view of the world and don't understand it, uh, the other cultures, you are going to have a limited view. So now we've just kind of walked through kind of some major things in a biblical defense for cultural awareness. Now I want to talk about worldviews. Yeah. 
in many times, uh, I'm a, we, right, right. And this has been my experience and people, many people believe that the race issues that exist around the world and in our country revolve around color. It's not so much color as a rejection of culture. And, and that's, that's, I think what you're trying to say is, is like we can't reject culture because God made it. It's a part of who these people are, who we are. You are your culture, your value. And that's where it goes into worldview. When we talk about a worldview, your culture is one of the primary things that develops and builds your worldview. And I think many times when we talk about racism and we just say that it is a color thing, we're missing the broader picture. Because in many ways, it's culture that makes people uncomfortable when it's different than their own, and then they want to reject it as not normal. And then when you start talking about majority culture world and how in many areas, not just white America, but in other countries where whatever the majority culture is, I can tell you, for example, um, the Uyghur people are a Chinese people group that are in northwestern China, I believe. They are a minority in, that gr in, in China, and what the Chinese government is now doing is they are trying to re-educate and erase that culture completely. That is their goal. The majority culture is trying to di disregard this culture in that people group. And that's many of what you've seen through the, the racism and slavery. It, all of those different challenges that face our country is because they were rejecting another culture and cheapening human life, right? And so we have a lot to, to walk through. Culture is beautiful. Even the differences, that's so, it's so, it's one of my favorite things about the role that I'm in now is I'm standing in Istanbul in a building that's 1,500 years old in a sea of humanity that looks nothing like me around me and just seeing how different they are and try, and then my heart is saddened because 99% of that country have no relationship with Jesus. So how do we begin to navigate that and take that to take Christ to them? Sorry, that's more missions, not what we're here for. Um, what is a worldview? This is key. Worldview is the thought system we develop for explaining the world around us and our experience in it. You have to be culturally aware, and then you have to begin to understand an individual's worldview. Because if you don't understand a person's worldview, you don't understand the system with which they value and they make decisions, the value systems that they use to make decisions about their life. You have to be an active student of worldview wherever you're at. Why do worldviews matter? Worldviews are an attempt to make sense of the world. We're going to watch a video in a minute that's going to go through the three primary worldviews around the world. And I'm, I'm taking a 
little bit of mission privilege here because this is going to help you, I think, as you deal with individuals uh, from around the world. Gospel sharers need to know where the gospel intersects with the people's worldview. All right, I want to read that again. Gospel sharers need to know where the gospel intersects with the people's worldview. Why do you think that's critical? Is there anybody that would try to answer that question? Why is it important for us to know where the gospel intersects a person's worldview? No, that's great. That's exactly right. Once you discern a person's worldview and how the gospel intersects it, you have a, you're in a better position to express the gospel. So, for example, going back to the New Testament example, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. All right, Acts chapter 17, that's his famous sermon on Mars Hill. And he uses their worldview of polytheism to make a segue to the gospel. You have all of these uh, idols built up for all of these gods, and you even have one for an, the unknown God in case you missed one. Let me tell you about the one that you missed. And then he goes and he preaches the gospel there. He was making a bridge from their worldview to the gospel. See how, how important that is? All right, understanding worldview helps us to contextualize our approach to missions. All right, and I'm going to... We're going to watch a video uh, that's going to explain these three worldviews. You, you, don't have, you can want, write these down. There's basically three primary worldviews. Guilt, innocence, honor, shame, fear, power. Okay? And by increasing our understanding of each worldview, we will learn the most effective ways to share the gospel with people from different cultures. Watch this video. Bear with me. It's seven minutes. All right, I know our attention spans less than three, but I want you to watch this video. I think it, it will help you to see how the importance of worldview and how the gospel intersects. Go isn't the whole story in missions. Tell adds to it, but that doesn't complete the story either. What if you did go? What if you did tell? And what if it was all in a language your audience didn't understand? that message would fall broken to the ground. Missions is more than just go and tell. It's go and tell a message that can be understood well enough it can be acted upon. Language can certainly get in the way, but worldview is perhaps a bigger obstacle. Worldviews are lenses through which we see and interpret the messages and events around us, and they are often particular to cultures. If you shared the gospel from your worldview with a person from another worldview, would they be able to understand it or more importantly, would it resonate in their heart deeply enough that they would act on it? Communicating the gospel effectively starts with understanding the three main worldviews, guilt and innocence, honor and shame, fear and power. Think about how the West operates. Individualism and rights are valued. 
Morality is based on right and wrong as defined by the law. You have the right to your own opinions, your own beliefs, even your own path to happiness, as long as you don't break the law. But if you do, the only solution is to suffer a punishment in proportion to your crime. Most Western cultures are in a constant search for the solution to guilt. Much of the Middle East and Asia operates differently. Family and community are valued above everything else. Personal relationships, reputation, and social status are the primary motivators. Come from a good family, do good things in the community, follow the social norms, and you will have honor. But do something dishonorable or have something dishonorable happen to you, and both you and your community will be shamed. As such, these cultures do their best to avoid shame. Some of Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and most tribal areas operate differently still. Reality is built on the spiritual realm just as much as it is on the physical realm. Most of their decisions hinge on the perceived positive or negative reactions from the spirits around them. This results in taboos, superstitions, spells, and sacrifices dominating these cultures. And it results in these cultures living in a constant state of fear. So if you are going and telling, what is good news to each of these worldviews? Let's look to Jesus for the answers. Jesus shows his ability to cleanse us of our sins in his interaction with the woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees bring her to Jesus, cite the law she has broken, and lay out the ascribed punishment of stoning. She is guilty, and her punishment is clear. So Jesus invites any of the accusers who haven't sinned to cast the first stone. One by one, the Pharisees walk away. Jesus is the only one who rightfully can punish her for her sins, but instead, he forgives her. Ephesians 1.7 says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. For those being crushed under the weight of their sin and see themselves as guilty, Jesus offers the forgiveness that makes us innocent before God. What about those who are hiding their faces from God because they feel like outcasts due to the shame of their failures? Jesus tells the story of a son who shamed his family by squandering his inheritance, falling to his sinful desires, and ending up so low he wished he could eat pig food. But when he returns to the household covered in dirt, wearing tattered garments, and carrying the shame of his past, his father runs to him, covers that shame with the father's own robe, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and throws a feast to welcome him home. Ephesians 1.5 says that in love God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. And Ephesians 2.19 expounds on that sentiment. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Jesus restores the relationship humanity had with God, covers our shame, and grants us the honor of being in God's kingdom. And what about those who spend much of their lives using sacrifices, spells, and superstitions to appease the spirits that strangle them with fear? Jesus calmed storms, multiplied bread and fish, walked on water, healed the sick, and cast out demons as a prelude to his power over the spirit realm before demonstrating his total power over sin and death. Ephesians 1, 
The power that God grants us is the same as the mighty strength he exerts when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Jesus has all authority, and when his spirit dwells in us, he gives us that same authority. So when you tell the good news, in guilt-innocence cultures, tell that God sent his son to live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserved, and pay the price for our sins so that we should not perish but have eternal life. Tell that our guilt is taken away by his death and resurrection. To those living in honor-shame cultures, tell that there is a Father in heaven who through Christ has established a place of honor for them in his kingdom. Like the father welcomes the prodigal son back into his household by throwing a party to honor him in front of the entire community, tell them that our Holy Father is preparing a feast for all of his children and heirs when his kingdom comes into its fullness. And to those who are in fear power cultures who are afraid of spirits, who feel like they are cursed, or who constantly have to offer sacrifices for some semblance of freedom, tell them that Jesus showed his power and authority over nature, evil, sickness, and curses all throughout the gospels. Tell them that they can give their allegiance to the Son of God who walks on water, raises the dead, calm storms, and destroys the works of the enemy. The gospel doesn't have to be twisted or massaged to satisfy the needs of the tribes, nations, and people groups of the world. It addresses every need head on. Jesus answers the hard cries of every individual and every culture. If you're looking for innocence, Jesus washes away the stains of your sin so you can stand before God blameless. If you're in need of honor and acceptance, Jesus makes you a citizen of the kingdom and a child and heir of the king. And if in the fear of your weakness you're seeking power, Christ's death-defeating power is promised to dwell within you. That's good news. Now go and tell the nations. What'd y'all think? <clears throat> Isn't that like the simplest way to, I mean, it, it just, I love the video because it helps us to understand the importance of allowing the gospel to intersect a person's worldview. When you are thinking about, it talks about Western worldview, like we would be in the Western worldview. Now, Remember, we're talking in generalizations. The majority of people that live in the West, they operate in this guilt and innocent culture, right? And just think about, you know, what motivates you, right? I'm going to try to prove to you that you are part of a guilt and innocence worldview. When you, when somebody asks you to do something, in your mind, you don't want to do it, but you feel what? And you end up doing it anyway. You feel guilty. They, they really, especially if somebody starts to lay it on thick. Well, if you don't do it, we probably just aren't going to be able to, to do whatever, you know. And, and we are really good. church people. I'm sorry, but we are really good with guilt. Um, <laughs> we know what drive. I'm good. It's, it's missional, right? I know how to get you. Um, but you have this idea. And just think about the things that you watch on TV. You know, I always think about the the uh, uh, organization that wants to raise money for the, the pets. You know, they always put those pictures of their very sad-looking pets. And it just, my I'm like crying by the end of it. It's like, I got to do something. Change the channel, 
right? So, so we are motivated by guilt in that when you are guilty, you, you want to be made innocent. And so it, that's just one idea. So think about the individuals that you are working with and that you're trying to share the gospel with. And if they are coming from a guilt and innocent worldview, then you know which Bible stories are going to help best bring that about. Isn't that awesome to think about? And so I, I want to encourage you, in order to understand somebody's worldview, you have to be in a relationship with them. All of these, that whole video is generalizations. But if we're honest, there's probably aspects of each one of those worldviews that we operate in from time to time. Whether it's honor, shame, fear, power, guilt, innocence. In your journey in ministering to people, it has to come to relationships. And I want to give you something practical when we talk about relationships with individuals that are in generational poverty. This comes from a book that uh, Ross referenced last week, What Every Church Member Should Know About Poverty. And this section, it's actually talking about church membership. <laughs> you know, when you have somebody that's grown up in, in generational poverty and you bring them in, into church, there's some certain things that you need to walk through and begin to consider. Uh, I'm just going to read portions of this because I think it's very helpful for what we're talking about. It says, When individuals who have been in poverty and have successfully made it into the middle class are asked how they made the journey, the answer nine times out of ten has to do with a relationship. A person who made a suggestion or took an interest in them as individuals. The I'm going down past the, the block. It says the first step in creating relationships with adults is to make the deposits that are the basis of relationships. Relationships usually begin as one individual to another. Now flip the page over and it talks about deposits made to individuals in poverty, withdrawals made from individuals in poverty. How do you how does a congregation create and build relationships through support systems, through caring about individuals and by promoting individual achievement, by being role models, by insisting upon successful behaviors in the church setting? And I love this sentence that's in italicies. Support systems are simply networks of relationships. If you have ever journeyed with somebody that's in generational poverty, what you begin to understand is they have little to no support network. That when a landlord is taking advantage of them, they don't know the proper process and their own rights to be able to fight on their behalf. Because they just don't know. Or they go to a payday loan because they think that's their best option in the system that is built around them. You remember last week when Ross showed that picture of the number of banks in Nutbush, 38122, versus the number of payday loans? It was over double. And that's, that's the support system that's built around them. So where are they going to go? But listen, so as you think about walking through and building relationships, 
don't forget people are people. And look at this, deposits made into individuals are part of appreciate, uh, appreciation for humor and entertainment provided by the individual. On the flip side of that, if you want to withdraw, if you want to take away from somebody, put them down, be sarcastic about the humor of the individual. Acceptance of what the individual cannot say about a person or situation. If they don't want to talk about it, don't. What, what are we by nature? Many times we want to be fixers, right? So in order for us to be fixers, we have to have all the details. And so many times in trying to fix a situation, we make individuals uncomfortable by making them talk about things that they don't want to talk about. Maybe trauma that they're not ready to, to walk through with anybody. And so if you are willing to say, you know what, I don't have to know all of that, but I need you to know that I'm here for you whenever you're ready to share about this, let's talk about it. Versus trying to hammer them until they give you what you want, the information that you think you have to have in order to solve the problem. Respect for demands and priorities of relationships, using the adult voice versus the parent voice, right? How many people like being talked down to like they're your parent and they're, they're really your peer, right? The adult voice and the parent voice are very important. You need to learn how to use your adult voice. And that adult voice is treating them as a peer versus as uh, somebody that's underneath you. Assisting with goal setting, not telling them their individual goals, identifying options and rela uh, related to available resources um, versus making judgments on the value and the availability of resources, understanding the importance of personal freedom, uh, personal freedom, speech, and individual personality, or and not assigning pejorative character traits to the individual. So as you enter into these relationships, try making deposits and not withdrawals. And many times when you are making withdrawals, what you're doing is you're reverting to your worldview and the value system with which you make decisions and you're negating their worldview and their culture. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. One thing that we guard against in missions, and we have to guard against in, in conversations like this, is the Savior complex. It is not your job to fix them. You are to help. You are to be in relationship with them. But it is not your job to fix them. And quote-unquote fix, that's based on what you think is broken and not what reality Right? And so relationships are what life is about. Jesus spent three years with his disciples building relationships. And so what happens so many times for our Western individualistic culture, we are transactional in our relationships, even in discipleship relationships. I'm going to get on my soapbox just a little bit. <laughs> 
we create so many times discipleship. Well, my discipleship takes place with Josiah on Tuesday mornings from 7.30 to 8.30. Now, Josiah, if you have any other options that you need something, if it doesn't happen on Tuesday between 7.30 and 8.30, I'm sorry. I'm just probably not going to be able to help you. Because in our individualistic culture, that's what we have negated or, or relegated discipleship to. But discipleship is relationship. And that means walking through life with individuals. You may think in your mind, well, if I don't share Scripture with them, if I don't pray with them, if I don't make them memorize Scripture, then I'm not discipling them. Is that important? Absolutely. But sometimes your greatest opportunity to disciple them is just to sit down and let them cry on your shoulder. You are no more like Jesus than when you are being empathetic and sympathetic and wanting to be there and not trying to fix it, but being in relationship with them. And here's the deal. Oh, this is, this is good. <laughs> be willing to share your issues with them too. How awful is it to be in a relationship where you think you're the broken one? Right? If I'm never willing to be open and vulnerable with somebody that I'm trying to be in a relationship with, how dare I think that I have all the answers to this broken person when I am probably more broken than them, I just can hide it. Man, that's so key. And when we're walking through these relationships, understand how culture and worldview play a role in how you need to approach them with the gospel and approach them with love. And you allow that to educate you in your conversations. And the best way to know somebody's culture and to know their worldview is to ask questions and to learn. And I've got six things, and then I'll finish up. I'm doing good on time. We talked about deposits and withdrawals. If you were a part of Mission Memphis, I'm going to give you my six action steps that I talked about with Mission Memphis um, in my little 15-minute TED talk there. Um, six action steps to take when building new relationships. Seek understanding. Seek understanding. If you don't understand why they do what they do or how they do what they do or when they do what they do, ask not to try to fix them, but to just to understand why, why they do what they do. Seek understanding. This is a big one. Don't make assumptions. You don't know their story. You need to stop making assumptions on why they are where they are and listen and allow them to tell you where they're at. Ask questions. And don't ask Close-ended questions. Y'all know the difference between an open-ended and a closed-ended question? How are you today? Fine. Did you sleep well? Yes. <laughs> you know, anything that can be answered with one word, that's a closed-ended question. Get questions that will help them open up about who they are. One thing that I know about people is most people love to talk about themselves. Jessica and I were in a meeting to, uh, just before this for love offering, and I said, I, no, I know, I know. It's nothing bad. It's nothing bad. I said, I thought it was going to be like this 10-minute 
point of the meeting. I said, introduce yourself and tell me one interesting fact. Well, 35 minutes later, I had a whole lot of interest, and it was all good. But what we were doing is people were talking about themselves and telling them what they love and what they're passionate about and how God has ministered to them. And all you have to do is ask. I did. I said, just tell me something interesting about themselves. And it was amazing the things that they shared in that meeting. But that's because people, they, they want to share. And they need a platform to share. And many of the people that we work with and minister to never have the opportunity for a normal conversation because they're always dealing with something. They're dealing with some type of uh, emergency. They go from one emergency to the next. And it's rare that they have just an opportunity to sit down and have adult conversation. Okay? So ask questions. Ask good questions. Be humble. You are not the Savior. You don't have all the answers. Be humble. Respect our neighbors. I think in any relationship, if it's not based out of mutual respect, the relationship is doomed to fail. And so we have to be very careful that we show respect and honor to those that we enter in relationships with. And know that different is not bad. Different is not bad. Unless it's biblically bad, right? Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> I have to feel like I have to clarify everything. Well, I don't do that. That's different. But Ben said difference is not bad, right? No, so, but yeah. <laughs> so, so I want to be clear. Um, different is not bad. It's just different, right? When it comes to culture and things that aren't clearly bad from Scripture. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> That's all that I have. Any question, comments? I like I see Melissa here and Denise, all of y'all one by one, life choices. Y'all could have taught this class 100% better um, because y'all are in these conversations on a regular basis and you're, you're in the work. And so any expertise that you have on this, please, please feel free to share because we're all on a journey trying to figure out how to best minister to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and hopefully... Some of the things that we talked about tonight will, will just help you a little bit on the journey. Any questions that I can answer or any comments? That's so true. But isn't it awesome when the Holy Spirit does it? <laughs> isn't that awesome? When you walk away and say, I, God, I had nothing to do with that, and I'm glad. <laughs> so good. It's so good.
Yeah, for me, like I have like my family background is messed up like most people's, right? Um, I didn't meet my dad until I was in third grade. And um, so I won't go into all of that, but just messed up. And so where I connected with God was God is my father. That when my earthly father failed me, I connected to him in a real way as my father. But some of the ladies that you may be dealing with in crisis pregnancy have never seen a godly man in their life. So they, they may never even want to comprehend God as father. Because every man that's ever been a father figure has abused them, used them, or whatever. Does that make sense? But for me, that's where the, the gospel hit. It's because I knew there, there had to be a better way. And I connected with God as my father. And so when I hear the prodigal son, and when I hear that God is that heavenly father, that's where I resonate with him because I longed for that type of relationship and he was the only one that I, I could find that relationship with. But the ladies that you're maybe ministering to or the men that you may be ministering to, it may be something completely different. And it, it just comes and goes. And, and, and when they hear it, they know it, right? Just like when you intersected the gospel, you knew it was right where you were at and right where you needed it. And so if, and I want to tell you, when it comes to evangelism, you're, you're going to mess up more than you get it right. But if you're faithful to share, at some point, I believe that God is going to connect that person to exactly where they need to be. Does that make sense? But if you're not sharing, there's no hope. <laughs> you know, if you're not sharing, there's no hope. Let's not allow the fear of, well, uh, honor, shame, guilt, innocence, fear, power. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, um, you know, no, just share. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead and allow the results to be with him. And if it messes up, if you mess up, try again. And if you mess up, try again. And I know that God's going to use what you, what you give to an individual in a mighty way. But we have to always have in mind, they will not come to know Christ unless I am sharing. Right, that is a part of the process. Romans chapter ten. How will they hear if you're not sent? Right. Anything else? Sorry, I could talk a long, long time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. I thank you for the opportunity just to talk about culture, Lord. I don't understand culture, but you created it, and it is a beautiful thing. And Lord, as we connect with cultures from all across the world and all across our city, Lord, I pray that we will find the beauty that you see in culture. And Lord, that you will give us wisdom as we seek to bridge the gap between the gospel and culture so that we can be faithful witnesses for you. And Lord, I am so grateful for the individuals that are in this room that are wanting to learn to be better witnesses for you, that want to enter into messy situations so that they can be salt and light. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be bold enough to build new relationships that cross language barriers, that cross cultural barriers, Lord, that cross socioeconomic barriers. Lord, I pray that you will create in us a burden to take the gospel to those that need it. Whether it's across the street or across the world, Lord, I pray that you will equip us to do so. And Lord, I thank you for this class. And Lord, I pray 
that it will be an encouragement to those that are here to take their faithful next step in ministering to individuals that are in crisis pregnancy or whatever that may look like in their lives. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In your name we pray.